This audio presentation was pre-recorded and edited for brevity and clarity. Hello, I'm Michael Buckley with the Bright Focus Foundation, and welcome to today's Bright Focus chat. Today's chat is advocating for eye health, what you can do. This is your first time in a Bright Focus chat. Welcome and thanks for joining us. And I'll just give you a brief overview of what we'll do today. Bright Focus Foundation supports some of the top scientists in the world, uh, those that are trying to find cures for macular degeneration, glaucoma, and Alzheimer's. We share this, the latest news from, from these scientists with families that are impacted by these diseases. We have a number of free publications and plenty of materials on our website, brightfocus.org, that offer tips for living with macular degeneration. Bright Focus chats, such as today, are another way of sharing information with families across the country. Without further ado, let me tell you a little bit about t- today's chat, Advocating for Eye Health, What You Can Do. We've been fortunate over the last few years to, to hear from a number of, uh, of physicians and researchers and um, uh, social workers and others talking about living with uh, vision diseases such as macular degeneration. Today we're going to go in a, a new direction to learn a little bit about advocacy. And that's a, a big, broad word that could mean as, as much as visiting with an elected official to explain uh, some, of your, some of your concerns all the way down over advocacy could be defined as being able to to better speak up for your needs and concerns with family members or people in your neighborhood or community. So it'll be uh, a new direction for us today, and and I'm looking forward to it. And we're really fortunate to be joined by a a group that Bright Focus works uh, quite a bit with, and it's called Prevent Blindness. And Prevent Blindness is based in Chicago. They have they have uh, chapters throughout the throughout the country, and and I've come to to know and respect them quite a bit over the last few years for their their knowledge of uh, pub, public health issues related to to vision disease, and for the the clarity and passion and, and effectiveness that they that they bring to their work uh, in communities and at state capitals and and in Washington. So we have two guests today that are with Prevent Blindness. The first is Sarah Brown, who's the Director of Government Affairs for, for Prevent Blindness. And then, our, and then our, our second guest is Dan Roberts, who ha- wears a, a number of hats in the uh, macular degeneration world. Uh, Dan is the Founding Director of Macular Degeneration Support. He's the Editor-in-Chief for the material publications at Prevent Blindness, and he's the author of the first year, Age-Related Macular Degeneration. So uh, we're very fortunate to, to have these representatives of Prevent Blindness. And first, uh, Sarah, I'd like to, to start with you. Um, first of all, thank you for joining Bright Focus today. Of course. Thank you for having me, Michael. I appreciate it. Great. Sarah, you and I have had the chance to, to work together over the years. Um, and uh, I was wondering if you could just tell the audience a little bit what you do as Director of Government Affairs for Prevent Blindness. Certainly. So, um um, first, like Michael said, um, I'm the current Director of Government Affairs for Prevent Blindness, um, which really just means that I represent um, Prevent Blindness's public policy goals and agenda to members of Congress and the administration. Um, so my day-to-day means that I'm spending a lot of my time on Capitol Hill meeting with congressmen and senators and their staff um, to inform them of the need for investments in vision and eye health um, at the CDC, um, at NIH, and at the Health Resources and Services Administration, or HRSA. Um, I also help develop advocacy materials for patients to use to understand how to represent vision and eye health concerns to government officials and how to understand the emerging public policies that could impact how they access vision and eye health. 
and um, to kind of take a step back on how I message um, that to members of Congress and their staff, Prevent Blindness itself is a nonprofit organization that advocates public health um, for a public health approach to vision and eye health. So what that means is that the work that we do helps to promote and support access to vision and eye care for people of all ages. So we don't really focus our efforts on treatment or access to care on any one specific condition or eye disease, nor do we concentrate on expanding access to care for a specific age group. Rather, the work that we do enhances the current system of care and supports the work that is being done, whether that's groundbreaking research at NIH or ensuring that preventative measures are being promoted by the CDC um, and that those measures are reaching the populations that they're intended for. Well, great. Thank you. How did you, how did you become interested in, uh, in doing advocacy um, on uh, vision issues? Sure. Um, so, to be honest, and I kind of joke about this, vision and eye health, I'm kind of, um, you know, the normal um, healthcare patient um, in that I didn't necessarily think about my vision until I, you know, came on board with uh, Prevent Blindness. Um, but my career interests broadly have always been in government affairs and lobbying, and I see that really as an opportunity to promote issues that may not get a lot of attention here in D.C., um, with respect to vision and eye health, I, I personally remember my own experiences getting glasses at age 14 and just seeing how clear the leaves on the trees are. Um, but it wasn't until I came on board with Prevent Blindness um, that I found out my grandmother lives with AMD, um, which means that both my mother and eventually I will be at risk for developing that too. Um, however, as I've become much more familiar with vision and eye health and through the many conversations I've had with Hill staffers, uh, with my friends and my family, um, I continue to hear stories about other people's experiences with vision and eye health, and I realize that it's something that no one really thinks to prioritize until suddenly you can't see very well at night or you blink a thousand times and that dark spot in the corner of your eye doesn't really seem to go away. Um, so as I continue my work in this space, um, I'd really love to be part of the changing conversation that is happening on vision and eye health and ensure that vision is elevated as a natural part of living healthfully and independently. That's great, Ned. And I think I had a few questions for you related to, to that conversation um, about what do you think are some of the, at, at the, the, in Washington at the national level, what are some of the key um, public health issues related to, to vision? Um, so like I alluded to earlier, um, Prevent Blindness is fully engaged with ensuring Congress continues to make investments at the CDC, um, at NIH, and at HRSA um, that will ensure that vision is integrated into popula population and public health strategies. Um, we've also expressed our concerns with lawmakers and the administration on keeping the Affordable Care Act's essential health benefits patient protection um, as a part of any efforts to reform health care, specifically because eliminating these benefits from health insurance plans could mean that patients with chronic illnesses like diabetes, heart disease, or stroke may not have access to services and treatments that could protect their vision. Um, in addition, we work collaboratively with many other patient organizations to ensure that policies surrounding Medicaid and Medicare protect patients from higher prices on drugs and treatments or high out-of-pocket costs for care. And kind of what's the, the distinction between what Washington uh, can do or should do on vision issues versus um, uh, what's done by at, at the state level. I, I think that's something that a lot of people who aren't in positions like yours may not understand. Like, what's a state issue and what's a federal issue uh, in terms of vision health? 
Definitely. So I, I think um, the best way to differentiate the two issues is to look at where the funding is coming from and look at what's actually happening on the ground in a state or a local community. Um, I think more and more these days, um, these two areas of policy are overlapping. And so it can be a little difficult to differentiate, you know, how you can be vocal on something um, related to vision and eye health when um, it, it's looking like it's happening at the community level, but the funding is coming from D.C. Um, so to cite a specific example with public health, um, our work advocating to Congress for strong investments at the CDC means that most of the funding that goes to CDC will eventually be sent to states and local governments for their own use in implementing programs at the community level. Um, such programs including encouraging um, communities not to, to smoke anymore or to ensure that there's access to nutritious foods that could help stem diabetes and other chronic illnesses. Um, so the misconception that at least I've discovered um, in my work at the, in, uh, advocating for CDC funding is that all the funding that goes to the CDC from the federal budget stays at the CDC. But the truth is that many programs or initiatives that you see happening at home in your state or community are as a result of funding from the CDC, which is what makes our advocacy on this particular issue so very important. Yeah. Well, great. And I appreciate that you're sort of showing that it isn't it isn't so so black and white, maybe as it used to be. And I'm kind of interested in, in the, the the type of meetings you have in DC. When you go to Capitol Hill um, and you meet with um, elected officials or their staff, what uh, what's their reaction when you know when you walk in and start talking about vision uh, as a public health issue? And, and like how 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 do uh, lawmakers react to uh, to your your being there? Um, so I found that the reaction that I get here in D.C. is, why are we not doing more on vision and eye health? Um, usually when I speak to members of Congress and their staff, um, there's agreement that it makes a lot of sense to invest in vision because we have a population who is aging and very likely to see impact on their vision and health as they age. But also even simple refractive errors make it difficult for working adults to do their job or to engage with the world around them and continue to be independent. Um, so vision really is what enables us to be productive and fully engaged. Um, but the, really, the realization that I've discovered in speaking with um, members of Congress and their staff and communicating these issues is that it is constantly overlooked in the healthcare oh. conversation, uh, which means that it has become and it'll continue to become very expensive to our country in terms of direct medical costs, um, caregiving, and lost productivity. Uh um, so they, members do realize that there is value in investing in these sorts of programs, especially when you um, make it known to them that vision and eye health problems are currently costing our country $145 billion per year. Um, however, without intervention or support from Congress, these costs are projected to increase to $717 billion by 2050, which I kind of mentioned to the congressional staffers who are somewhere in their 20s that it's kind of about the time that they'll be looking at retirement themselves and vision could be a big issue to them down the road. The problem with being an advocate on this issue and many others is that we are essentially competing for the same slice of pie with other very serious health issues. But the point that I make with congressional staff that seems to resonate very well is that for a small investment, we can get ahead of a very of a very real and serious problem and hopefully eliminate vision loss as an additional and unnecessary burden. Yeah, no, I, th I think I think you're right, and I think particularly as uh, um, 
you know, the baby boom generation is retiring, um, you know, that a lot of these issues come, come to the forefront. So hey, I, I think it's an interesting question you asked, why doesn't our country take vision more seriously? And, you know, just, just your own personal opinion and experience, do you think it's, it's because the, the financial resources are so tight, or do you think that these, these issues don't have the public awareness that they need? Or, may, you know, what, what, you know, kind of, how would you answer the, the question you posed a few minutes ago about why why don't you think we, we take these seriously enough? I think that there's a, a number of different reasons why we haven't taken vision seriously. Um, but I think, um, and not to overgeneralize a problem, I've definitely had this um, myself in be, being a vision and eye health consumer, is you don't really think about it until it's a problem. And you don't think about the implications of losing your vision and just what that actually means. Um, you know, prevent blindness itself, um, we've been around for well over a century. And I think several hundred years ago, or not several hundred years ago, several decades ago, um, blindness and vision impairment were, were much more prevalent. And we've enjoyed several decades of emerging technologies that um, help protect vision loss, at least in terms of disease and anything that's largely um, preventable. Um, but I think if you look at healthcare in, in general, there's many other chronic diseases that have somehow emerged, um, and Congress has responded to those as sort of a piecemeal approach. And so as vision health has, and there's still multiple challenges um, to ensuring that avoidable vision loss, um, you know, continues to be addressed. There's a lot of um, illnesses and diseases that have emerged that have taken a lot more precedence, and Congress has um, continued to appropriate funding to address those diseases um, as decades have gone on um, with appropriations bills and such. And I think vision has largely been left out of that um, as, you know, as diseases that lead to um, vision loss have been eradicated or remedied over the years. No, I, I agree, and um, and I think you're right, Sarah. When you talk about the um, you know, the costs of 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 um, independence, <clears throat> people you know being un, unable to live, you know, difficulty living uh, independently as as they grow older, and um, I know in a, uh, pretty soon we'll we'll turn to to Dan Roberts uh, to talk about a lot of his his experiences. But I just want to say, Sarah, I really you know appreciate your point about trying not to pit one disease against the other because. Mm-hmm. The, and I think instead, um, I like what you said about using the positive examples that we have made progress in di- in diseases in this country when we make a uh, uh, you know a full a full effort at the public public and private sector. So I think it's um I think uh, I, I think you're right. It, it is a it, it's it's good to understand the that the pie is limited and to to talk about the. Um, you know the, the the serious consequences of these diseases. So before we turn to to Dan, so I just kind of had one one last question. Um, if somebody wanted to become active, uh, in, you know, in their community on on vision issues, um, how how do you suggest they they get started? Well, I think it's first of all, I'd like to say it's a great time for people to become vision advocates. Um, I think we're starting to see a higher demand from patients for better vision coverage, including for low vision re- rehabilitation services and access to emerging treatments. Um, I think the best way to do this is to start by sharing your story. Um, I spent about six years on Capitol Hill with the Senate, and I left about five years ago. And even to this day, the constituent meetings that I can remember the most are the ones that related personal experience to an action that I can take or advise my boss to take on their behalf. 
So if you don't know what to ask for, reach out to organizations like Bright Focus or Prevent Blindness, um, organizations that are fully in tune on a daily basis to the issues that affect vision and eye health, and see what we're working on. Um, see if they're hosting any advocacy actions like a campaign that you can lend your name to or hosting an advocacy event here in D.C. or even at your local congressional office. Um, as always, picking up the phone and calling the office in D.C. works just as much as emailing them. I know for a fact that staff are required to respond to constituent inquiries. And you can also replicate these actions at the state or local levels, too. But finding out what vision and eye health organizations exist in your own hometown and in your state and reaching out to the, your state and legislative officials or city council um, is definitely the best way to go. Um, and it may take a lot of time and endurance, um, but partnerships and numbers, and the more you ask, the more that you'll keep your attention and keep vision a part of the conversation. That's great. No, I, I really think that's a uh, – the way you describe it sounds, sounds very positive and, and a way that people can become more involved in these issues. And, and I think it, it's understanding that advocacy doesn't – mean, you know, that the, the people in Washington with the fancy suits and the expensive shoes, that this is this truly is people all across the country just, just telling their stories. And I think that that, that uh, sets up well to, to take a few minutes to, to, to hear from Dan Roberts, um, who, um, as we mentioned earlier, is, is an advocate on macular degeneration issues. And so, uh, Dan, thank you for, for joining us today. And I was wondering, could you tell us about why, why are you an advocate for vision health? Uh, first of all, thank you for inviting me to speak. That's part of advocacy, you know, is to get invitations to speak. And so I appreciate the uh, opportunity, Michael. Um, I started out as a patient in need of information. And so I joined a, a thing called MD List, which was an email discussion group uh, on, the inter on the very new Internet. It was 1994. And uh, then I became, uh, because I used to be a teacher uh, and retired uh, early, I became a teacher, again, of the people in that list, which uh, started out with 12 people and now has grown to. Well, we've had over 1,400 uh, subscribed to it since that time. And so we all uh, learned from each other, and uh, they kind of voted me uh, as the person who was supposed to take, uh, take charge. So uh, that led to the creation of the Macular Degeneration Support Organization and our website and a group, uh, that, a telephone support group and our international low vision support group. So it grew simply out of need. I was taught that teachers are also good listeners, and by following that rule, I learned what our low vision community needed and my mission, therefore, expanded into advocacy. It was kind of a natural progression. Uh, I've always said uh, you should go through every door uh, that opens for you. Don't just stand around in the hallway. And so I had to live up to my own preaching there. Uh, of course, you want to leave that door open in case you made a mistake. You want to get back out. Uh, so <laughs> that means uh, taking part in funding requests on Capitol Hill. Uh, I've done that with uh, Sarah. Uh, I've addressed uh, hearings uh, on different issues uh, with, this, uh, with the CDC and Medicare. I've gotten involved with those. I've consulted with low vision device manufacturers and pharmaceutical companies and, of course, done a lot of writing and presenting. And uh, um, that is, I, when I speak or when I write, I'm writing for thousands of people uh, who uh, don't have a voice of their own. And so I, I try to find that door, go through it, and I'm taking several thousand people through that with me. So that's my 
what, that's yeah. my view of advocacy in my position. That's that's great. What what a what a great inspiring answer. And we've had a few questions uh, that have come in today about um, you know kind of that that daily life in in your community, going out to stores and restaurants, and you know what. In kind of in your opinion, your experience, what, what can sort of the, the community sector, stores, restaurants, you know, uh, places do to best help uh, those with um, diseases such as AMD? Um, there are opportunities in the community to speak. Uh, many, many uh, support groups are always looking for programs and uh, even the patients themselves are good speakers because they've been there and done that. Uh, so speaking engagements are, are opportunities to advocate. Uh, other opportunities are helping to start and run support groups. Uh, others are to help with fundraising in the community, bolathons, uh, that kind of thing that uh, other organizations sponsor to raise funds. Uh, volunteer uh, to help. That's how my organization operates, totally on volunteer basis. Uh, be an Internet scout. If you know the Internet, if you're familiar with it and know how to get around, you can be the scout for all of those who are still unconnected or unfamiliar with the Internet. So you could visit libraries just as a, uh, a counselor, let's say, um, an unofficial counselor, uh, to help people use the Internet and find the information they need. Um, you, could, you, you do need to be an informed consumer, but you need to be skeptical. You need to speak up about misleading or false claims made by organizations and commercial enterprises. Uh, you need to speak out in favor of good efforts, uh, compliment those who are doing a good job, including your doctors, and people even at the store who understand your situation and offer their help. We need to encourage that kind of thing in the community. We need to donate generously but cautiously. Check out organizations with GuideStar and Charity Watch and Charity Navigator. And finally, be a model patient. Show others how to live with and live well with low vision by displaying tenacity, adaptability, support, and knowledge. That's what I call the task of yeah, living with vision. That is fantastic, Dan, and um, it's all wonderful advice. And um, let's have some of the bright focus chats. We we may have families um, you know, uh, that are new to, um, uh, to 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 vision diseases, and and you know I think it's safe to say probably a little little overwhelmed about what to do. And uh, do you have any sort of big picture advice about how to navigate the world of Medicare and Medicaid and, and private insurance? Um, I'm, I guess that's a, a pretty daunting process, but how should um, how should people uh, begin figuring figuring that uh, those those, op those situations out? I have found all of those organizations to be very helpful uh, to the consumers. Uh, you may have to wait a little bit to to uh, get the phone answered, but when you're there, and if you ask the right questions, which means you need to be educated yourself. Uh, in the choices. And so the first thing is learn about what you're asking about. I know that sounds a little strange, but you have to know what questions to ask. And once you do, and you ask them correctly and politely, you're going to get all the information you need from the, the support personnel at all of those organizations. Uh, show them that you know what you're talking about and that you're not going to hang up until they give you the answer. <laughs> That's uh, that's great advice. And kind of on that that theme of, of educating yourself, um, I, yeah, how in your experience, you know, what's the best way to ask family and friends uh, and neighbors 
for help. I mean, it's not something that comes naturally for for a lot of us. I mean, what, what's sort of your experience been on how to how to ask for for help? Um, the biggest problem we have with family and friends, and I'm speaking from personal experience, is uh, that they need to allow us to captain our own ship. Uh, we still know the ship better than they do, and uh, however, we also need to educate them uh, with empathy. We have to understand that they don't understand and and uh, tell them what our needs are. Uh, we need to teach them uh, how to live well with vision loss because they may be genetically prone to it. They need to learn that. That's one of the most important things I tell my what I'll call my people. They're actually the clients that call me and they say, how can I explain this to my family? Uh, give them the resources that are out there. We have lots of resources on prevent blindness uh, that will help them uh, to understand. And be honest. And don't be afraid to ask for help. I t uh, Tom Sullivan, who's a good friend of mine uh, and well-known in the field of low vision for many years, uh, says, let them love you. And I like that. Uh, think, of, think, of, uh, think of them as... Uh, as people who want to be given a gift and give them the gift to help you because there's no better feeling in the world than to be able to help somebody that needs it. Uh, just give a dollar to the next, you know, just give a dollar to the next needy person that you find and see how good that makes you feel. And then you'll know how good people can feel if you just let them in on it. Yeah, no, it's, it's great advice. How would, how would someone find a, a, a vision support group in their community? You could go to the MD support site, Prevent Blindness. Uh, Vision Aware is a good resource. There are Those are probably the three uh, top resources, I would say, to go to to find support groups. They're all listed there geographically. Uh, I also uh, run an international MD or a low vision support group that has 180 groups around the world. Uh, you can find a group by looking at that list. And so uh, there, it's easy if you just type in the words um, low, uh, let's say you can put in vision support as a keyword, you're going to find many opportunities. Yeah, well, that, that's, no, I appreciate that. And uh, a couple of questions that have come in uh, recently. Uh, do you, have you had experience at, at a restaurant where um, they might have a, a, a menu that's in a, in the larger Print or did you ever have? Is that something you've ever come across where where maybe uh, a restaurant might be able to have uh, offer a little assistance in that manner? Well, I wish they would. I actually went to the trouble to take in my favorite little cafe here in my town. Uh, they had a very small print uh, menu, and so I I took it home and spent hours turning it into a large print menu and took it back thinking that they would really uh, appreciate this, and I never saw it again. Uh, so it's really difficult to get. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Uh, it's difficult to get uh, places to make those changes. So we have to meet the world halfway. We can't expect them to uh, to raise the lights, turn down the sound, uh, raise the font in the menus. We can't expect them to go 100%. So it's up to us to uh, advocate for ourselves and say, uh, Do you have a larger menu? And if they don't, well, pull out your lighted magnifier or your uh, your optical character recognition machine, whatever device you happen to have at the moment, and and take care of yourself on it. Uh, but don't yeah, mention, don't forget to mention to them that they need to help too. 
Right now, and, and there's an expression: people vote with their feet. And if there's one down, if there's a restaurant down the street that has one, I think they they may uh, see some benefit there. It's interesting, I think, how you talk about the menu situation. I think it pairs up very well with the points that Sarah Brown made earlier about you have to tell your story, and people, uh, you know, may or may not. Uh, do the right thing from there, but step one is to is to speak up. And kind of related to that, we we often get questions here at Bright Focus about how can you make the most out of your eye doctor appointment. And I was wondering, kind of in your experience, uh, what you know what what makes that go um, as well as it can. What works for me is that I know what questions to ask when I walk in. I've already got it written down, or at least in my head. Uh, I show the doctor that I know what I'm talking about, uh, that I have read the resources, and then I, I ask the uh, questions that can be answered. There are some questions that can't be answered, and, and an educated patient knows that and won't bother the doctor with questions like, how much time do I have? You know, there, that's a, doc, a question a doctor will never answer for you. Uh, you've got to do your own uh, research and that's not difficult because uh, organizations like uh, Bright Focus, for example, put out a lot of information about these diseases. Uh, all they have to do is to put forth a little effort. I know I sound more like a, uh, a doctor advocate here when I'm talking about that, but um, patients need to go into the office with a professional attitude, and they'll be met with a professional attitude. Yeah, no, I get it. That's 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 very that's very well said. And and staying on the 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 healthcare question for a minute, this could go to either Sarah or or you, Dan. If people are talking to their elected officials, are there things that you wish Medicare or Medicaid covered, um, but but don't? Like, so if an elected official ever asked that question or you wanted to bring it up, are there you know either Sarah or Dan, are there there if you, if you could change one thing about Medicare or Medicaid, uh, what do you think? What would it be? I've been to Washington four times uh, with Prevent Blindness, uh, and the, the one issue that I bring up every time is uh, they, they need to make that one little change in, in uh, reimbursement for uh, magnification devices. They made a mistake when they first introduced the legislation that it was would not cover lenses. They were talking about eyeglasses. Well, now we don't have just eyeglasses with lenses on them. We have lots of devices, but they're not covered because of that one phrase in that legislation. So every year I go back and I say the same thing over and over. And, of course, I get the question, well, how are we going to pay for it? And I told Sarah I wouldn't mention this, but uh, one time <laughs> I said, if nothing else, at least hold a bake sale on the White House lawn, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sarah, Sarah, do you want to add some, something? I don't know if, if you could expand Medicare or Medicaid in some fashion. Uh, how, would, how would you do it? Uh, well, I echo what Dan says, and I know Prevent Blindness takes this approach as well. Um, I think vision has largely been left out of Medicare to a confusing degree. Um, you know, I think it's kind of strange that um, Medicare would, you know, be much more willing to um, pay for a very costly hip or joint replacement um, if somebody, you know, happens to fall as a result of a vision impairment, not to oversimplify that problem, um, than they would to um, take a much more cost-effective approach in covering vision benefits. Um, we've actually been engaged with several members on the Hill to talk about the best approach, and uh, Dan is right. It's always the question of how are we going to pay for this? 
Um, there's several bills that are pending in front of this Congress that take several different approaches on how to integrate vision um, and, and not just vision, but dental and hearing benefits as well. Um, for some reason, everything that's kind of above the neck in terms of sensory um, and health issues has largely been left out of Medicare. Um, I would, you know, I would love to see that integrated back in and, um, you know, the conversations that we have with members of Congress, again, on, you know, how to pay for this, so what's the right approach to it to make sure that the reimbursement structure is there, that the benefits that are most essential are covered and how to do so, I think, um, is definitely going to be an ongoing conversation as we move forward on that. Yeah, it's interesting. I just wanted to that. How to... Go ahead, Dan. I was going to say, uh, Congress doesn't get a lot of compliments these days, but I wanted to shout out uh, to them on the recent, uh, what they call the omnibus legislation, where they mm -hmm. have increased the amounts of the the amounts of money considerably for the Vision Health Initiative and for the Glaucoma Project and for the uh, National Academies of Sciences and Engineering and Medicine, uh, uh, who, who they have identified as having a vital role in addressing the challenges that we face. So I wanted to uh, give them a compliment. Uh, they might they might need that about about now. So yeah, no, we greatly great. appreciate. Well, great. We're just in our, oh, yeah. our you know time. Time for a couple more questions, kind of related to that Medicare and Medicaid. Is there something about private insurance that you you know you know if you would that you'd like to to have cover these these um, these diseases better, or is there sort of a common misperception that where people think you know service X is covered when it really isn't? So I guess how would you sort of broadly comment on private insurance? Sarah probably could answer that better than I. <laughs> I'm actually trying to think of the best way to approach that. Um, I think, you know, just like I said earlier, I think that um, integrating vision as that piece of holistic um, health um, in terms of chronic diseases and, um, you know, caregiving and coverage of low, low vision rehabilitation services and devices, um, I think that's the approach that I would love to see um, private insurance take. And I, and I hope that they do take that, considering, you know, the trends that we have um, with our population and, um, again, the demand for um, the coverage of these services from the consumers. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, I think that, that if one were being rational, they could see that, that it's, it's more, more cost-effective to, to address an issue before it come, becomes a problem. Like I said, you know, if somebody falls and breaks their hip because of a, of a vision, that seems like a very uh, expensive uh, time to to you know for, for the federal government to to get involved and I guess a question about that that you know how do we pay for a thing if, if if advocates across the country talk to their to their elected officials and explain what they need and they get that question the well how we're going to pay for it I mean I my own opinion is that's that's Washington's job to figure out the priorities I, mean, I, that, I could see that being kind of an intimidate I could see that being kind of an intimidating question for a grassroots advocate I mean how do you suggest they they address that that question well I mean, you mean other you mean other than having a bake sale <laughs> exactly yeah. things might have to be a little Happy expensive yeah. um, I mean I, I wouldn't I would hope that a congressional staffer wouldn't ask um a vision, you know, somebody who lives with low vision or vision disease on how they're going to pay for their care. Um so I, I wouldn't be too worried. I mean that's that's a question that I would expect to get. <laughs> um yeah, no, because I'm a professional and this is you know, this is my job. Um the answer to that is um, you know, it's it's looking at 
you know, the prevention side of things. It's, you know, a lot of diseases that affect vision, um, if it's caught, as, you know, as early as possible, it can, you know, there's treatments that are out there, there's therapies that are available that can help slow the progression of many things that could cause um, vision impairment. And, I mean, Congress doesn't necessarily like prevention, but, I mean, this is who we are. This is, you know, the approach that we take. This is the approach that um, we want patients to feel empowered to take. And, you know, I think that, um, in terms of how to pay for it, if Congress, you know, would um, consider making small investments, um, there's a lot of costs that can be saved down the road if they would be willing to make those investments. Yeah, that's great. Patients, no, also, need to be, patients also need to be made aware of the uh, patient assistant programs by uh, pharmaceutical companies and others, uh, and also some organizations who have uh, a little money uh, that they can help them with their insurance until this problem is settled. Yeah, I I agree. We are uh, nearing the end of our our time together, and um, I was want to kind of throw a final question out to Dan and and you know Sarah, if you want to uh, uh, weigh in as well. Uh, big picture, are you feeling hopeful or op- optimistic about um, life uh, uh, for people who have uh, who have vision disease, whether that's uh, in the research realm or in public support or you know community support? I mean, how, you know, just based off of your experiences, um, where do you, how do you, where do you see things things going in the future? Are you asking uh, either one of us? Yeah, yeah, both. Yeah, one or both. Okay, you can go, we've you had first. a disappointing. We've had a disappointing year this past year with some research that has not made it through the trials, uh, but there is still other research that is doing very well. I uh, I tend to be a Pollyanna, and I like to think that uh, there that there's a lot of good work going on that's going to come through. It's going uh, exponentially faster every year, uh, and so I have uh, high hopes uh, for treatments uh, and cures uh, coming up in the near future. Well, great. And Sarah, what's the view from Washington on this? I'm, I'm a perpetual. I've been here in D.C. for 10 years. I'm a perpetual Pollyanna, and you kind of have to be to, to do the, the work here and, you know, be able to manage it. But, yes, I'm feeling very optimistic about vision and eye health. Um, like Dan brought up with the um, fiscal year 18 omnibus bill, um, the two programs that prevent blindness is keenly interested in at CDC um, received increases, um, but big ones. Um, and, you know, we've, like I said, we've been on the Hill almost um, every single day so far this spring to um, continue to ask for those increases to be um, a part of the next year's uh, fiscal appropriations bill. And the messaging that we're getting, and you might have to change your messaging once or twice to have it fit the conversation, um, but the resonance that we're getting from Congress is very good, that this is a great time to make investments in vision and eye health and to make sure that um, some of the most serious vision impairments and eye diseases out there um, can be prevented with just a little bit of investment. Yeah, well, that's great. I appreciate uh, anybody who's been wor- doing this work for a decade in Washington and, and is optimistic. Um, I think we we need we need a lot of need more of you. Um, it comes I just want to turn. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, Sarah and Dan, I just really appreciate the you taking the time to be with us today. And, and again, thanks so much for for um, for all that you do. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Yeah. Right, well. The information provided in this recording is a public service of Bright Focus Foundation and is not intended to constitute medical advice. Please consult your physician for personalized medical, dietary, and or exercise advice. Any medications or supplements should only be taken under medical supervision. 
Bright Focus Foundation does not endorse any medical products or therapies.